0: What's up, Fire Dogs? Welcome to Coffee Break. This is episode number eight. Today, I'm joined with Deputy Chief John Veneta. He works in Salem Springs Fire Department, Arkansas. Today, we talk about what it takes for military members to transfer into municipal fire departments. And we talk about his experience as a Marine working with the State Department and working with Iraqi firefighters. Hope you enjoy. So welcome. Thanks for, thanks for reaching out to us. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Uh, if you could, just for our listeners, introduce who you are and where you work.
1: Okay, my name is John Veneta. I'm deputy chief, uh, mostly concentrated on training with Asylum Springs, Arkansas Fire Department. We're a small 50-member full-time fire department right on the border between uh, Oklahoma and Arkansas. Full service, ALS, uh, advanced life support and transporting ambulance, uh, hazmat team, special ops, all that kind of stuff. Do a lot of water rescues in the summer. Uh, came here from Michigan. I retired from a fire department in, outside of Detroit. Did 25 years there, uh, retired as a battalion chief, was looking for kind of something new to do, and ran across this one, knew some people in the area, and they talked me into it, but um, also spent 26 years in the Marine Corps Reserve. Uh, The last about 15 of that I spent with Crash Fire Rescue uh, at Selfridge Air National Guard Base
0: in Michigan. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you, sir. Thank you for joining us, and I couldn't help but notice that your accent wasn't something that you would typically hear from Arkansas, so I'm glad that you covered that you're from Michigan.
1: Yeah, everybody notices that pretty quickly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you emailed us, and you mentioned that you'd like to talk a little bit about transferring into a municipal fire department job, kind of what the requirements are, certifications that transfer, and what the job market's like. Specifically, we're talking about military folks transferring into municipal fire departments, so what can you tell us about that?
1: Okay. So I went through this at, uh, in about 1999, 2000, my reserve unit had a transition and I was already a career firefighter up there. And I was a combat engineer in the Marine Corps reserve and the unit transitioned. And they looked at me and said, well, you're an E7, you're a gunnery Sergeant and you're a fireman. And we have this new crash crew detachment that we're going to stand up. Um, you're perfect. And I said, okay, well I don't know anything about airplanes other than you know what they look like. And uh, I don't know what other training requirements they have. So the first thing they did, which was really interesting was they gave me TAD orders and put me with the base fire department for two weeks. So I could just spend time with the air force and uh, guard firefighters, you know, asking them questions and figuring out what I needed. And that's how I got introduced to IFSAC and the DOD search system. Because as a firefighter in Michigan, Michigan had no reciprocity with anyone. Uh, I had to figure out the whole IFSAC thing on my own, uh, called up the fire academy. They had no idea what I was talking about. And they said, no, we don't do that. We don't know what you mean. They called up the uh, DOD and they said, we don't know who they are and we don't have anything on them. So you're going to have to do everything over again. So what I ended up doing just for time was I went to... Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of or been through because they put on a lot of classes, and I challenged the Firefighter 1 and 2 exam there, got my AFSAC certs, transferred that to DOD, and then I went to the South South Carolina Fire Academy and did my ARF class. And as far as I know, I'm the only reserve firefighter in the Marine Corps that ever went that route of kind of getting all the different certificates and then submitting an administrative action form to get my MOS. Uh, I don't know whether that works for everybody or just because I was a gunny already and they were willing to make some moves for me. But it took me a couple of years to get all that done. And I got a real idea of how uh, fractured the firefighter training system was throughout the country compared to what DOD had. And uh, even within DOD, I was really frustrated because I'd go to the base fire department and say, hey, I want to take this fire instructor class through IFSAC. What do I have to do? And they would point me to the base education office to go take my test. And the base education office would tell me to go back to the Air Force Reserve Unit. And the Air Force Reserve Unit would say, well, we don't really know where you should go. So they'd send me to the Guard and they'd say, well, we can't do it. And end result, I never got any of those certs there. So I was just living off of, uh, you know, my basic certs. And then I got deployed the first time. And I went to North Carolina to uh, Camp Lejeune, uh, Marine Corps Air Station, New River, And when we got there, they already had a bunch of classes lined up, uh, IFSAC classes. So naturally, all the active duty guys left to go to the war, and we all kind of stepped in and filled those slots. And that's how I got my instructor one and two, which turned out to be the requirement for this job here in Salem Springs uh, when I applied for it, which I would have never gotten back home. So um, I've had to navigate a lot of different uh, things like that, but I think the important thing for... DOD firefighters to know is that most of the states, probably 40 to 45 of them, will accept FSAC certs and will, uh, and especially the smaller departments, will be happy to hire a firefighter too with hazmat ops and bring them onto their department and maybe even not send them to a full academy. Uh, your big cities departments, you know, like for around us, Tulsa or Little Rock or, uh, you know, you get into LA's and New York's, they're going to send everybody to the academy. They don't care what your previous experience is. But if you're looking at some of the smaller departments back home, you know, 50 to 100 members, they're looking at, well, I can take this guy on and maybe I've got to send him to EMT, but, you know, I don't have to send him to 10 to 12 weeks of the academy. And that's important to our daily staffing. So we look for guys who have experience. Uh, We have an Air Force firefighter working with us on an internship right now. And uh, we're looking forward to bringing him on full time as soon as he's off active duty. So that, that's that been an interesting
0: thing. And I guess I'll let you um, catch up and we can talk about that next. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting path that you took. And did you work as a firefighter in Michigan after the Marine Corps or did that come? Uh,
1: yes. So I was actually I joined the Marine Corps uh, right out of high school. My intention was to join the reserves and then go um, as an officer after I finished college. Uh, but it, talking to a uh, lot of the prior active duty Marines that were in my reserve unit, that didn't sound like such a great idea anymore, uh, especially because I was getting ready to get married and my wife wasn't crazy about moving every two years. So I did have a bunch of those guys who were firefighters and they all talked up the job left and right. A couple of them were from Detroit. And uh, while I wasn't that crazy, uh, we all know how you know many fires they fight and everything, I did see see a lot of guys from the suburbs who said, Hey, this is a, this is a good living. You can make a decent living. It's a, it's a great job. And so I dropped out of college and got my EMT and started testing for fire departments. So I was doing, I was already a corporal in the Marines by the time I got hired on the fire department. And then I uh, did that until I retired in
0: 2013. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah. You'd mentioned that there's a individual working in your department who is Active duty Air Force and a firefighter, and going to eventually be hired on there. So he's utilizing the Skill Bridge program, I guess you could call it. And uh, I'm sure most of a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with it, uh, but not so many of us have probably heard of somebody doing it. Can you explain kind of what he's going through? Sure. So. He's evidently at about the
1: five and a half year mark of his contract. I think he signed for six years. Uh, his father is a training captain for a neighboring department, but you know, a little bit bigger department, they've got kind of stricter rules about who they can bring in and stuff. Whereas uh, us being kind of small and uh, very progressive to uh, want to offer people opportunities. So he reached out to a couple different departments in the area, we were the ones that answered him back. And said, uh, yeah, if you can do the paperwork and send us whatever you need from us, then we'll be happy to follow up. So the other deputy chief here was following up with him for a couple months, passing emails back and forth. And finally, uh, that all got worked out. And he's been working with us for about a month. And it didn't take long before, you know, he's working, you know, day shifts, basically. But he's just riding as a fourth guy on the ladder or on the engine every day. And the guys are getting an opportunity to work with him, to talk to him, to see what he's about. And uh, he fit in very well, very quickly. And uh, he was talking about what opportunities he was going to have going forward. And we said, well, you know, you you know, if you do a good job here, then you'll have an opportunity. And once we see your work ethic and, you know, your experience and everything else, if you're interested in staying here, uh, we'd like to give you the opportunity. So he starts our internal uh, three-week academy next week. Once he finishes that up, um, you know, he's still got about a month to go before his terminal leave, and uh, he'll just basically go on a shift, and we'll roll him right through his, um, you know, his terminal leave, let him work as much as he wants to until he gets off active duty, and then he'll get hired full-time as a firefighter, and we'll send him to EMT school for six weeks down in uh, the Arkansas Fire Academy.
0: Yeah, that's pretty fantastic, and you said that was a six-month internship that he's doing, correct?
1: Well, it's, it started uh, six months, but the last two months of it, I believe is his terminal leave block. So he's actually going to be with us for like four months, unless he just works while he's, you know, he takes his leave and,
0: and, uh, you know, starts working already. But that's up to him, what he wants to do. Yeah, what a great opportunity to be able to get paid through the Air Force while kind of, you know, transitioning into the civilian sector. And even in the same career field, which is kind of surprising to me, I've I've known people do skill bridges. I always thought it was something that you maybe you didn't have any experience with. Say, I wanted to be a carpenter, I'm a firefighter. I would do a skill bridge to be able to you know transfer into the civilian sector. But um, but it, that tells you how much I don't know about it. So pretty, <laughs> it's pr- pretty awesome to hear hear an experience like that. So. Yeah, we're excited to have them. And, you know,
1: recruit recruiting has been challenging over the last couple of years. You know, for one thing, you just can't get out and talk to people like you used to with COVID. And, you know, the job's just, you know, the when unemployment's low and uh, there's other options, you know, we're looking for some pretty high caliber people and the pay isn't all that great. So you've got to find those guys who are really interested in being firefighters. And they've got lots of options, especially in a growing area like here in northwest Arkansas, where everybody's just growing leaps and bounds. It's uh, challenging to keep people on and, you know, keep them from bouncing from that bigger department or, you know, filling the hole when they do. So uh, any opportunity we have to encourage somebody to get into the fire service, we, you know, honestly, we, we had no intention, you know, bringing them on. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, as soon as he gets, gets here, we're going to take a look at him and we're going to put the full court press on him to hire him. It was much more of, hey, let's give this kid an opportunity to come up here, uh, see what we're about. But if he stays local or stays in the fire service, then we consider that a win. We're paying it forward to the rest of the fire service to encourage people that, hey, if you don't want to work here, that's fine. There's some place for everybody. And uh, we'll be happy to support you and learning about us. And then you go there and tell them, hey, those guys in Siloam
0: Springs treated me well. And that's uh, good for our reputation, too. Yeah, it's good press for you. Most certainly. That's pretty cool. So you also talked to me about working with the State Department and working with Iraqi firefighters as a Marine in 2008 and 2009. We want to talk a little bit about that. You mentioned that you're in Mar- Ramadi, Iraq. Yes. Yeah, I so I got deployed
1: the first time and just stayed stateside and uh the year after that, a bunch of guys from my unit uh, volunteered and went, and I was kind of like the the only staff NCO. I was the only, you know, above E5 uh, from crash crew that didn't deploy, and I just felt this loyalty to my squadron of, you know, everybody else is like laid off or whatever. They need the money, and they're going to go, but I, we're going to go eventually, and those guys will be out of the deployment cycle, so they can't go back to back, so we need somebody. So I stayed, and I stayed. And then finally, about 2008, they got orders to go to Djibouti and it was a smaller uh, deployment. So by that point, I'd uh, been selected for E-9 and it just I didn't fit. You know, it doesn't make sense to send an E-9 with a 140 man detachment. So that at that point, I started raising my hand and saying, hey, I'm willing to go as an individual augment wherever I can. So a friend of mine got me in touch with uh, the civil affairs headquarters element in uh, Multinational Forces West over in Anbar province. And I managed to get over there with another buddy of mine. And I showed up and they kind of looked at me like, OK, we're halfway through our 12 months. You're here for the rest of the deployment. Um, we're going to take this master sergeant who's here and send him home and we're going to put you in his spot. And then that guy said, well, I don't want to go home. So then they said, well, what do we do with you? Well, we don't know. Go sit over here and make PowerPoints with this warrant officer. So I'm like, well, great. So I think fig- I get there and I'm thinking, OK, I'm at least here. Let me find something to do. And being a fireman, I did what all firemen do. How can I get out and see the local firefighters and see what they're up to and how they do things? So I talked to you know, my boss and he said, yeah, go. I'll take a look, whatever. And so I got out to meet the local fi- Iraqi firehouse and talk to them. And of course, when you're civil affairs, everything you do, you have to file a report on. So I came back and I filed the report and it went up to the chief of staff's desk. And uh, the next week I'm walking back from Chow and the colonel walks up and says, hey, Master Guns, walk with me. Yes, sir. What's up? He says, well, I read your report from last week and I want to talk to you about the Iraqi firefighters. I'm like, sure, sir. This is awesome. And so we get back to his office. He says, we've looked at everything in civil affairs for the Iraq, for the Iraqi government. We've looked at their postal service, we've looked at water, we've looked at electrical generation, how to build their courts, everything else. But we've never had anybody here who knew anything about the fire or EMS service. And now we've got you. So I want you to go to every Iraqi fire station in Anbar province, and I want you to file a report and I want you to build me some kind of plan to bring these guys up to at least the level of their neighbors. So I don't expect you to turn them into the New York Fire Department, but I want to know what it's going to take to at least bring them on par with Saudi Arabia and Bahrain or UAE. I said, well, sir, that's pretty tall order, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. And of course, I'm just jumping inside, just excited to have a job and excited that it's got to do with the fire service. So I start setting up with all the civil affairs teams that are out in the different villages to go meet with the Iraqi firefighters. I meet with the general in Ramadi who's kind of like the provincial fire chief and, uh, get started with them. And I just walked into the general's office. He was a Colonel at the time. And I just, I had a picture from, from home of me and the two guys I worked with right before I left, um, on engine five in Clinton Township, Michigan, you know, and there's the three of us sitting on the bumper of engine five with our arms around each other, you know, a typical fireman bumper photo. And I just handed that to the general and said, uh, you know, I want you to know that I'm just a fireman. I mean, I'm wearing all this gear and I've got this flak jacket on and all this stuff, but my heart's a fireman and I'm here to help you and your firefighters to go home at the end of the day and to figure out how my government can help your government do this. I'm not worried about whether you're Sunni or Shiite. I'm not worried about any of that stuff. All I, all I want to deal with is fireman stuff. And, you know, as soon as that got translated, the smile on his face was reward enough. And we had a really good relationship for the five or six months that I worked with him. Um, But what was neat was in the process of trying to figure out where I needed to go and who I needed to talk to, it seemed like every National Guard, Reserve, uh, firefighter who had worked his way over there into some kind of unit was trying to find some way to work with these guys. So I start calling around and I find that there's a Air Force team, coalition Air Force, coalition Air Force training team of three, uh, Air Force firefighters working in Baghdad with the, with the Iraqi fire Academy. And they're working for, um, U S army major who is an FDNY firefighter as a regular job. So I get hooked up with them, go to the fire Academy, meet everybody, uh, The major's got a Sergeant First Class who's a volunteer fire chief from New Jersey working for him. And as I'm going around and meeting all these people, it's just like all reserve or National Guard guys who are former firefighters or firefighters. And all they want to do is get involved in the fire service. So did a lot of work with those guys, got to meet a lot of people. Um, filed a really good report that, you know, after you leave, you wonder how much of it actually got taken care of, but managed to get some stuff for the Iraqis, uh, got them their first set of, uh, decent extrication tools that they'd had in 20 years. Uh, all of Western Iraq, they had one set of extrication tools to cover, you know, half the country, um, Got them generators for their stations, some boots, stuff like that. Just little stuff that was just getting left in Connex boxes all over military bases. And when they'd go, hey, can anybody use this stuff? I was at the front of the line to uh, say, let me get these for these guys. Because they're going out and dealing with IEDs. They're dealing with, um, you know, checkpoints that they don't know when they go through a checkpoint, if it's real Iraqi police or if it's insurgents that are waiting to ambush them. Um They were uh, really dealing with some crazy stuff. And then just the madness of, you know, how do you get through a city where every corner has got Jersey barriers up and trying to have an efficient, quick response and talking to them about, you know, can we change up our checkpoints just so that they can get through the city a little bit faster? And then I would take that back to my command and talk about, you know, can we change these up a little bit just so the fire trucks can get through? And that, you know, sounds like a pretty small thing, but in their world, it was huge. So just a re- really fun time working with those guys um, and an experience I never expected to have on my way over there. And it just felt like, you know, after after that, it was like I come back home and it's like, OK, my military career is pretty much done. I'm never going to top that.
0: Yeah, What an incredible experience that is um, having to work with Iraqi firefighters. And I, when you mentioned it to me, I thought you were talking about military affiliated Iraqi firefighters. But no, you went out into the country and and, uh, interacted with these folks. And that's pretty incredible. And to, to hear that they didn't, you know, have extrication equipment or one station did to cover half the country. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And not to mention that, you know, you're, you're a firefighter in a war torn country. You know, it really, um, helps put things into perspective for us over here that we, we probably got it pretty good. Um, when compared to the rest of the world for, uh, so what were they, I guess, what were they like, or how would you describe them uh, compared to, you know, American firefighters?
1: Well, it was, they were, they were, I, I don't know that they were as into the job as kind of we are. I mean, that's probably painted with a broad brush, but there was a, a fire station right there at the National Fire Academy that they had in Baghdad that we were working with. And at one point, they had a news crew come out to do a like docu-series or documentary about them. So they would set some tires on fire somewhere and they would show up to put the tires out or they would do a drill in the burn building. And, uh, you know, I just, it, it was, it was upsetting. Cause here you are at the, you know, their national fire Academy. You would think the guys there would be a little step above and you're watching them throw ground ladders upside down and, uh, stuff like that. And you're just like, Oh God, you guys are killing me. But, you know, when The farther you got from Baghdad, the less stuff they had to work with. And so I'm out in Ramadi, which is, you know, a relatively big town, Ramadi and Fallujah. Um, and they've got nothing but, you know, blue jumpsuits with uh, the Ranger rubber boots and a yellow Metro helmet. And that's it. That's all they've got to go to a fire. And uh, at one point, I went to one of those towns to... do my uh, my evaluation of the station. And I got to the civil affairs team hut and I walked in and told the guys what I was there for. And they were like, well, you know, we'll be happy to take you over there, Master Guns. But we've already, you know, we already had a guy come and do that like last year and we've got a report on it. And I said, well, I'd really like to see that report because maybe I don't need to go over there. And They give me this report, and I said, so who wrote this? And they said, well, I think it was a a sergeant from, you know, 1-9, one nine, one of the infantry battalions. He was a volunteer fireman, so he knew what he was looking at. And I start reading this report, and the guy says, it was obvious that the captain of the local fire station had no no training or knowledge of the modern fire service. Uh, As example, he had never heard of the concept of venting a roof with a chainsaw. And I just I'm reading this and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, guy. This uh, the, the roofs here are made out of concrete. You're not doing vertical ventilation, much less, you know, a fire department that doesn't have ladder trucks. They don't have bunker gear. Most of them, they don't have SCBAs um, the last thing they're going to do, even if they had a wood roof was go up on it with a chainsaw, they're happy to just <laughs> stick a hose through the window. Yeah, no but, problem. but that guy's experience that, you know, wherever he'd been, you know, as a firefighter, his experience was that if you didn't know how to vent a peaked roof with a chainsaw, then you were incompetent and a fool. And that's the way he wrote his report. And I said, no guys, we got to go out there. We got to see these guys and see what they've got. And they were very, you know, very much the typical, uh, fire station we saw over there, which was 20 or 30 guys with, you know, a couple pumpers, a couple tankers and, um, just no bunker gear, no, no air packs, uh, just stick a hose in the window and do the best you can kind of deal. Yeah. And when you got into Baghdad, you'd find, you know, they were fully equipped. They'd have two sets of bunker gear and everybody'd have their own SCBA with a mask and all that. But the farther away you got, uh, it seemed like the less they had. And I got to meet the general who is the commander of like the national fire chief. Uh, We went out and had dinner with him one time and I asked about that and I got the, well, you know, it's the violence out in, out in Anbar has been very violent. We can't move all of our equipment out there. And I was like, sir, with all due respect, I've been in Baghdad for three days. I've watched three car bombs go off from a distance, you know, just seeing the clouds, you know, when the thing goes off and I've been in Anbar for four months and I haven't seen a single one. So the world has changed. You know, your your security situation has changed. Baghdad's your problem, not Anbar. So we need to get stuff out to those guys too. And uh the I guess the most interesting thing about that whole meeting was that one of the guys with me was another National Guard guy who was a fireman. He was from uh Oklahoma and he was a sergeant major for the army unit that drove me around. And uh the chief of the Iraqi fire service had evidently been to an IFSTA conference in Stillwater. And uh, wanted to talk about Penguin Joe's or whatever the big bar is down in Stillwater, and ask him the uh, Sergeant Major Nix if he knew where that was, if he'd ever been there, and you know. Next time I go there, I'm going to call General Petraeus and I'm going to have you be my tour guide, you know, and <laughs> just like, wow, I this is surreal. I can't believe that we're having this discussion here.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, but, incredible experience. And it's almost like you're stepping back in time, interacting with them, really, you know, no, no bunker gear. I mean, that's crazy for us to think about in, in American fire service. Um, you know, it goes it goes back to the day, probably the 60s when you or, you know, I, I bet it was even better for us in the 60s than it is for them now, you know. But again, it probably yeah it puts I mean, things had, in perspective a little bit and helps you appreciate what we got.
1: yeah, they I mean, they had no hydrants, you know they're they're um, running all tankers. everything's tanker operated. They had no EMS service really to speak of. That was one of the things we were in talks with them about was uh, getting them a nine one one service, you know, some kind of phone number that they could all call and and a radio system that would work because uh, they had nothing but you know walkie-talkies line of sight was all that they had, and they couldn't keep those charged because they only had two or three hours of power a day. So that was one of the reasons why I was able to get them the generators. Um, But they they just had so little to work with, and for them to go out and just throw water on a tire fire um, to them was like a major accomplishment that the truck worked. And that, you know, they made it through the city without getting blown up. So their standards of uh, professionalism weren't exactly very high, but, you know, they had to be somewhat dedicated to put up with the things they put up with and still come to work every day.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Well, well, chief, thanks so much for coming on. It was a great conversation and a lot of good stuff talked about. Uh, You have any final thoughts before we finish up?
1: Well, I just want to encourage uh, the Air Force and DOD firefighters out there who want to be career firefighters on the municipal side. Uh, the biggest thing that you guys can do other than just getting your applications in is if you haven't been to an EMT class, then do that. Uh, there are places like around here where we hire people that have no training. But the more training you have, the higher you probably end up on the list. Um, but the 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 EMT is really a key uh for making yourself right at the front of the pack. So I know that that is something that I talked about going to training and readiness conferences for the Marine Corps back in the early 2000s of we need to start getting our guys trained EMT, if not for just the general use of it as crash fire rescue, but just to make these guys better qualified and prepared for a civilian job. And if there's anything that you can do to make yourself more, uh, competitive with outsiders, let's get that EMT license. Uh, especially encourage that.
0: Yeah, great advice. Well, thanks again for your time. Uh, have a good one, sir.
1: Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on.